I'm Steve Fisher. There's no doubt our society seems somewhat dysfunctional right now. Almost half the country appears to be in a constant state of distrust and vehemently hateful of the other half. Can we blame politics? The media? Is it systemic or could it be biological? Perhaps it's all of the above. The bottom line is there's a vast amount of information available on any given topic, but no distinct arbiter of the truth. Law professor James Steiner Dillon pondered this in an article for The Conversation. In this era of highly specialized knowledge, we trust a relatively small cadre of experts to be the people to go out and independently verify and develop new knowledge in these areas. And the rest of us really have to rely on that. He's here to discuss why we aren't getting along on Life Slices. Good morning, James Steiner, Dylan. Well, good morning as we record this. Who knows what time it is when people are listening to it. I'm going to start with a question that I hope you are eminently qualified to answer. Who is James Steiner Dillon? Thank you. And, you, you know, I, I don't know if how well I qualified I am to answer that or not. From some perspectives, I might be the least well-qualified person to answer that question. But, but I can certainly give you some biographical details and some, some resume details that might help your listeners sort of situate where I'm coming from. I'm a law professor at the University of Dayton, which is located in Dayton, Ohio, southwestern Ohio, uh, at least for the moment. Actually, beginning next year, I'll be moving to to join the faculty of the University of Akron School of Law, which is on the other end of Ohio, northeastern Ohio instead of southwestern. So I'll still be a law professor in Ohio, but moving to the other side. In terms of other details, I have a PhD in jurisprudence and social policy from UC Berkeley and both a law degree and a master's in philosophy from New York University. Which is Perfect. Leading to my next question. How do those subjects intertwine? Philosophy and law? Well, there are many ways. The interesting thing about being a law professor is that law, both as a practical discipline and an academic discipline, really touches on anything and everything that you could ever be interested in. It means both that as a law professor, we're, we're sort of a jacks of all trade in a particular sense. We can pursue whatever interests, whatever you know passions we may have. Law and philosophy touch upon each other in many ways. There's a whole discipline of legal philosophy, which isn't really what I am you know, primarily interested in, but but that gets into questions of jurisprudence, of how should courts decide cases, things like that. My particular interest, my my doctrinal specialty, the area of law that I tend to write the most about, and while I teach a few different things, the thing that I consider myself primarily a teacher of is the area of evidence law. Evidence being the body of legal rules that deal with how courts find facts how a court in a trial is to determine what the facts of the case were to then apply the law to it. So there are all sorts of interesting questions, as you might imagine, that undergird that process. How is a court supposed to figure out what the facts that gave rise to the lawsuit were so that it could then decide whether a criminal defendant is guilty or not guilty, whether a corporate defendant is liable or not liable, whatever the case may be. I have brought to bear, you know, going to your question about philosophy, there are certainly questions about epistemology. There are interesting questions. I've also done, within the scope of evidence, I've done some writing about the use of expert witnesses in litigation and the role that especially scientific expertise plays in litigation, how courts engage with scientific expertise 
The short version of that is they don't do it very well. But there are, there are interesting problems that arise there that are very much of interest to me that go to how is a non-expert, in this case, the judge or jury, supposed to engage with and especially adjudicate technical disagreements between experts, because that's usually the situation that you have when litigants are seeking to introduce expert testimony. They both have their own experts who say, who support the position of the person who's paying them. No great surprise there. But then the judge and jury has to try to make sense of that and reach some kind of well-warranted conclusion about what the facts are. So there, there are all sorts of interesting theoretical questions that one can get into there. And it's perfect that you bring up the rules of evidence and facts, because that was what we're keying in on today is an article you wrote on why can't Americans agree on anything. I've shortened the title. People can look you up and find it. We'll get to that toward the end. You say that it sometimes feels as if Americans are losing our ability to agree about basic facts of the world which I definitely agree with, that's obvious. Is this just an American situation? I don't think it's just an American situation. And I don't think that it's, I don't think it's unique to the present time. I do think that there are some phenomena that have, that are occurring, say, within the past 10, 20 years that, as I put it in the article, perhaps make it feel as if what had been a shared sense of agreement about certain basic facts is, is slipping away from us. And I do think that there are, I think that there are pressures on that that are, that have arisen relatively recently. But, but no, I think the, the situation that we're facing at the present moment in the United States is just one manifestation of a, of a much broader, more general phenomenon. I blame the internet and the whole aspect of social media and people sharing what they perceive as fact. Mm -hmm. And they're never fact based in what they're saying. They, they tend to be opinion. Do you see that also? Or is there another phenomenon at play? I certainly think the internet is playing a major role in sort of putting us in the position in which we currently find ourselves. And the, the major reason for that, I think, is that the internet has just made it, has lowered the barriers to, to, to reaching a very wide audience to almost nothing. In an earlier version of the article that you're talking about, I had, or an earlier draft before what got published, I had made a reference to the proliferation of what I called cheap information on the internet. And the editors didn't like that term cheap information. They seemed to think it might confuse people. But what I meant by that was just that it is it is much easier. The cost of reaching a wide audience on the Internet is so much lower than was the case prior to the advent of the Internet and social media that we we do that. I think that that is one one major contribution to what I call epistemic pluralism. It's simply the case that literally anyone with an internet connection can put their voice out there. And then whether that gets whether that voice gets picked up and goes what we call viral or not depends on a number of other factors. But at least the barriers to entry now, or if not exactly zero, are, are very, very low. So we've always had differences of opinions throughout time. When did we start disagreeing about facts? Empirical facts don't matter anymore. I think there's always been some of that as well. For example, one example that I cite in the article is you know, creationism versus evolution, obviously, is a, a debate about what we might consider a question of fact that has gone back from the moment Darwin wrote on the origin of species. There's been a kind of hybrid ongoing debate about that. So I don't think the fact that we're disagreeing about facts is brand new either, but I do think that we're in a moment in which 
It certainly can feel like the common core of fact that we that we all tend to agree on is is shrinking smaller and smaller. And I think there are many reasons and many perspectives that one could take on why that's the case. You could certainly look at it from the perspective of structural political changes. And Ezra Klein had a great book a couple of years ago called Why We're Polarized, in which he makes that case that part of what we're seeing now is just the result of, of the fact that throughout most of the 20th century, the, the two major American political parties were not highly ideologically homogeneous due, due to some sort of quirks of American politics that arose in the, in the 20th century, largely due to the compromise that the Democratic Party made with the segregationist Southern Democrats. So there's there's that whole perspective, right? There's the perspective of political structure and the incentives that that created. I don't talk much about that. One could also talk about other types of psychological structures or, or incentives. For example, the work of Jonathan Haidt, he has a terrific book called The Righteous Mind, where he makes the case that Political liberals and political conservatives literally perceive morality differently. Political conservatives really have so-called moral taste buds that liberals simply don't have, which lead them to you know, just perceive the world very differently. A couple of things that I, I guess if there's a theme to the article that I wrote and some of the work that I've done, I think the case that I would want to make is that while, of course, one thing we haven't mentioned and certainly could mention is overt, intentional disinformation and misinformation campaigns. It would be absolutely naive to deny the fact that there are unethical bad actors out there who are attempting to sow confusion and sow discord you know, for their own purposes. And I certainly don't deny that that's the case. But I do think it's worth emphasizing, and this is what I was trying to emphasize in, in the conversation article and what I've tried to emphasize elsewhere, that even in the absence of these sort of malicious actors, even in the absence of intentional disinformation and misinformation campaigns, there are psychological phenomena there are, and incentives, and there are just certain aspects to the nature of knowledge itself. And the manner in which we all in this era of abundant knowledge of highly specialized information, the manner in which we all have to obtain most of the knowledge on which we rely, that I think would contribute to a measure of what we'll call epistemic fragmentation or epistemic splintering, even in the absence of any kind of intentional bad action or intentional injection of misinformation into the conversation. Yeah, I was just getting to that because you use two terms in the article that I think need a little definition for most of our listeners. Never mind our listeners, for me. <laughs> uh, the terms are epistemic pluralism and epistemic dependence. What are those in English? Epistemic pluralism is, is a term that I use to just refer to a sort of persistent state of disagreement about questions of fact. And to try to give just, just a tiny bit of background, the law review article in which I, I coined that term and let me note that other people in epistemology have used the same term. I sort of came to it from a different angle. But I was writing sort of in response to the work of John Rawls, who was a very prominent political theorist in late 20th century America. I think he died, I want to say early 21st century, but his major works were written in the late 20th century. And Rawls wrote this book called Political Liberalism, in which the, the fundamental question presented is how can the state in a society that is characterized by endemic disagreements 
of moral perspective. Rawls uses this term comprehensive viewpoint to essentially mean the fundamental moral perspectives on which we all base our values and from which that we all refer to to decide more applied or more specific questions about morality and ethics. You know, Rawls made the point that liberal society is characterized by entrenched disagreement about those comprehensive values. And he offered a variety of, of reasons for that, but his project in political liberalism is to try to articulate a way for the state to make legitimate action or undertake legitimate action that, that doesn't sort of tread upon the disparate, reasonable, moral, comprehensive viewpoints that citizens adopt. Again, Rawls was primarily concerned with questions of moral pluralism. He doesn't pay very much attention to questions of empirical fact. There's one little passage where he basically just says we should all just defer to the findings of science. He doesn't seem to think that that's a particularly complicated question. Where I took up the project in a law review article called Sticking Points was to make the point that in fact, a lot of what Rawls says about moral pluralism, disagreement about questions of ultimate morality, also very much applies to disagreement about questions of empirical fact, and for many of the same reasons that Rawls identifies. A major reason being what Rawls calls the burdens of judgment in a pluralistic society. There is no established church in the United States, and the protection of individual conscience and expression guaranteed by the First Amendment, as well as various other things, more or less guarantees that there's no top-down state-imposed orthodoxy, either in questions of morality or in questions of empirical fact. And what that means, especially when conjoined to the fact that we are all forming our moral and, and empirical beliefs on the basis of our own perspective, our own experiences, almost inevitably means that there's going to be some pluralism. There's going to be some disagreement that arises about how people approach and understand these topics. So I get into well, what are some of the causes of that, but by epistemic pluralism, that's essentially what I mean, right? A, a sort of persistent state, an irreducible state of disagreement about questions of empirical fact. One cause of epistemic pluralism, among others, is what the term that I use is epistemic dependence. That's coined by a philosopher, John Hardwick, in a great article, I think, published in 1985. Hardwick's point is simply this, that we can too easily think of ourselves as independent epistemic agents, meaning we can too easily think of all of our beliefs and knowledge as having been owing to the operation of our own rationality as applied to our experiences in the world. But the fact of the matter is almost everything that we think we know, we know because we were told from someone else who possessed what I'll call epistemic authority, right? Or someone who we just believe to be trustworthy. Mm -hmm. And the example of that, a very simple, straightforward example of that that I've used is, well, how do you know who the first president of the United States was? You could go to the National Archives and ask to see the records going back to 1789. I think I know um, the answer. It's George <laughs> Santos. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah. yeah, right. But the fact is, almost nobody goes to the archives and looks that up, right? Nobody independently undertakes to ascertain who the first president of the United States was. We know it was George Washington because at some point, probably in elementary school, a teacher told us, or we read it in a book, and we trust that information because the person who gave it to us, whether through a book or in person or whatever, has some kind of social authority. It is a person who is vested with the social trappings of knowledge. We trust that the information that we're getting from this person is reliable and trustworthy. We also found the remains of the cherry tree. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. I, I mean, again, 
Yeah, we, we could go out and independently, there are historians who do this, right? It's not that nobody's out there doing this, but I guess that kind of gets to the second point, right? That we, in this era of highly specialized knowledge, we trust a relatively small cadre of experts to be the people to go out and independently verify and develop new knowledge in these areas. And the rest of us, we really have to rely on that. We take and incorporate the, the work that these people who are out there sort of on the front lines developing and, and confirming knowledge, we take that and accept it. But the point I would want to make is that, that's, that there, there's nothing wrong with that, but almost everything that we claim to know that we think we know, and I think we can fairly say we do know, we know because someone with authority told us. I blame a lot of our current situation on cable news, and I'm not sure if that if there is a distinct correlation. It's just more an observational thing. Mm -hmm. I don't have data to back it up. But it seems like since we had all these different cable news outlets popping up, bringing on different experts who they claim are experts, we've never heard of them. So we just take it on their authority that, yes, indeed, this person is an authority, so we should listen to them. But there is a wide range of what they're telling us. Mm-hmm. And it, it can get baffling. And I, and I often say that news today, it's not like in the old days. We'd turn on Walter Cronkite and believe him. Mm-hmm. Now you have to watch multiple news outlets, read multiple stories to try to get a cross-section of the truth. So it's become work. Do you see that? Sure. I, I think what I would say there, and this goes to a phenomenon that I discussed in the article that I published, is what Professor Dan Kahan, who's a psychologist and legal scholar at, at Yale, calls a, a couple of related concepts, identity protective cognition and cultural cognition. But the basic idea there is we are all motivated to accept and profess the empirical beliefs that align with the views of some groups to which we identify. So those of us, and I think where cable news comes in, is that there's a cable news station for the conservative Republicans, there's a cable news station for the liberal Democrats, and there are various other news stations, but they all purport to be telling the truth on the basis of the experts that they bring out. I think part of the the problem is that We're all sort of motivated to seek out the information that already confirms what we what we already believe for reasons that may have very little to do with sort of rational evaluation of evidence and have more to do with social incentives to align ourselves with particular groups. So so I think that's part of the phenomenon that you're describing. And I also very much think, going back to what I was saying about epistemic dependence, that a, a real part of the the difficulty in which we now find ourselves is that we seem less able to agree on who are the trustworthy experts. If we're getting most of our information from the experts, and if we must get our information from the experts, just given the incredible proliferation of information and knowledge that's out there, the fact that we're less and less able to, to agree on who is a trustworthy expert and who isn't, I think that really is a major contributing factor. How do we get to that point? I don't think the solution is... I'm very skeptical of sort of top-down solutions to combating so-called misinformation. I'm very skeptical of this idea that just need Facebook and Twitter to keep so-called misinformation out of social media. I'm skeptical of that for a couple of reasons. One is that I don't think it'll work. I mean, there's an old saying that information wants to be free. I think to the extent that you're trying to prevent people from hearing information, that just gives it more of this allure of the forbidden fruit. And I think given that the Pandora's box is sort of open with the internet, I don't think it's going to be 
effective to try to limit people's access to what we might rightly call misinformation or disinformation. I also am very concerned that the solution might be worse than the problem in that regard. I don't want to live in a world in which Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk are the ultimate arbiters of what constitutes political truth. And I don't mean to deny that there's a lot of misinformation circulating on social media, but I'm very skeptical that a top-down solution is the solution to the problem. I think the solution to the problem, and it must be a longer-term solution, an inculcation of epistemic virtue. There was a time, much of the motivation for public education, and this this idea is, has maybe not completely fallen by the wayside, but is not emphasized as much as it used to be, was the inculcation of civic virtue, that we needed, the state needed to provide a free public education for all of its future citizens to enable them to exercise the burdens and rights of citizenship wisely. I think that there's very much an epistemic component to that, which needs to be emphasized more in public education than it, than it currently has been. We, we need to be providing young people with the tools that they need, both to resist these psychological effects, right? To make them aware of the fact that we have these psychological tendencies to want to believe information that confirms our prior belief or confirms whatever group we belong to, whether it's a political group or religious group, whatever it may be, that, that we have these psychological tendencies and to be trying to push back against them. And we also very much need to give people the tools to do that. And I think that's very much is a matter of teaching critical thinking of uh, media literacy and things like that. Do you see a correlation between ending the equal time law and the problems we're having today with disagreements? You know, that's an interesting question, and it's not something I've given a great deal of thought to. I think what I would say is, with the advent of the internet, with the advent of cable, like I said, Pandora's box was going to open up regardless. You know, Whether we were requiring equal time on public airwaves or not, as, as soon as these alternative methods of broadcasting a message to the public became available. I don't think that what's happening on network television really would have made much of a difference either way. And I, and I guess I would also add, going back to what you said about Walter Cronkite, let's not romanticize the old days so much. It certainly was true on one hand that when Americans are, are getting all of their news from one or two sources, that maybe there's at least what we might think of as sort of a brittle or superficial consensus insofar as people just have less access to alternative viewpoints. But I, I'm not sure that that was altogether a good thing. And insofar as inevitably there are perspectives that are being lost when we're delivering just sort of a single homogenized message to people. So I think on balance, the challenges that we're now facing are healthy in a sense. On balance, I think it's a good thing that people have access to a variety of perspectives, but I do think that we need to do some work in really at the, at the individual level, because it can't be done elsewhere, thinking about how do we help people draw those distinctions between, again, who is reliable, who's a trustworthy expert, and who isn't. We also have a problem in various parts of the Constitution being up for grabs and that we don't know what the First Amendment actually stood for, the Second Amendment actually stood for, what it says, what it doesn't say. Would we be better off if we rewrote the Constitution to carve more principles into stone? Well, you know, the Constitution has always been up for grabs. Um, if you look at, you know, constitutional history since the framing of the Constitution, it's always been the case that different 
factions, different groups, different judges viewed the document and its meaning very differently. And I think partly this problem is just intrinsic to the ascription of meaning to a written document. In addition to evidence, I've also taught courses in legislation, which is really just the law about statutory interpretation. This is inevitably a problem anytime you have a written document that's applied to a situation that wasn't foreseen by the people who drafted it. There are gray areas. There are areas that are the words on the page cannot fully resolve all interpretive differences so that, so that those gaps have to be filled in by something. And inevitably, they get filled in by the perspective and the life experiences and to some extent, the, the normative commitments of the person doing the interpreting. I do think with respect to the Constitution, you know, those problems get more severe the older the document gets because we, we just get further and further removed from the sort of social and cultural context in which the document was written. It's easier for us to interpret and understand a statute that was written 10 years ago because we just we more readily can sort of identify with we, we understand kind of what the purpose of the statute was, what the, what the people who wrote the document were trying to achieve. Thomas Jefferson apparently held the view that the Constitution should be thrown out and rewritten every generation to avoid that problem. And I do think it would avoid that problem. It might just raise other problems insofar as we have to relay the foundation for society from the ground up every generation. It creates a certain lack of stability that we might prefer to have from one generation to the next. And at least the, the method that we've adopted now, I would say, allows for more of a controlled change. Obviously, the meaning of the Constitution, whatever the Supreme Court may say about it, they're not just umpires calling balls and strikes. The meaning of the Constitution does and has and will continue to change from generation to generation. And I would say with the current court, we've seen some of those changes coming relatively quickly in a relatively short period of time. But if we throw out the Constitution tomorrow, and replace it with something else that might buy us a few decades of some more stability. There would still be questions of interpretation. But I think fundamentally, the problem is just intrinsic to the practice of having having written legal sources, have, having a document that, that purports to bind decision makers in some way. James, we're out of time, unfortunately. Where can people learn more about you and read more of your work? Well, my all of my, uh, my written work is on SSRN, the Social Science Research Network. If you just Google my name, James Steiner hyphen Dillon. You can find that there. You can also find my bio at the University of Dayton School of Law's website. And is there a question you'd like to answer that I haven't asked? You know, the, the question that I was hoping you would ask was the one that I, I already answered, which is, what do I think the, the best solution to the problem is? And again, I really think that it's a focus on trying to what I call inculcate epistemic virtue. That I think is the big takeaway here. My thanks to James Steiner Dillon for sharing his thoughts on this social phenomenon. When we can't agree on anything, it's very hard to find common ground. On the next Life Slices, you'll meet two politicians, one a Democrat, the other Republican, who have forged a partnership to help improve the lives of the people in their community, despite headwinds from party leadership. In the meantime, as Rodney King said, can't we all just get along? If you liked this program, please like Life Slices on social media and subscribe wherever you find fine podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions. All rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesleyan Studios.